Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Greetings to all of you and thank you for once again taking some time out of your busy day to join us on what is going to be a fantastic show. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters, which to date is comprised of seven volumes, all of which can be found in ebook and paperback at Amazon.com, as well as being in their lending library if you are a subscriber to that service. In addition, Volume 6, 5, 4, and 3 are also in audiobook at Audible, iTunes, and Amazon, with the others to follow as time permits. So please purchase a book for yourself or a friend and help us in the production of our podcast. And now, if you thought Jumping Jack Flash was a gas man then the topic of our other oddities segment today is going to boing you right out of your easy chair. <laughs> and with that, here is my co-host and brother, Kevin. How are we doing today, Kev? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Super duper. I'm chomping at the bit for this segment. And uh, just so the people know, you know, uh, we're, we're focusing mainly on Bigfoot and uh, other cryptids, but... Sometimes we're just going to dig into some weirdness, and uh, we're out there on the cusp of it today with this story. We that are. My it, has. This is, uh, you know, it's probably a little early for Halloween, but it is kind of a Halloween-like episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, man. I, I guess you're locked and loaded. I'm locked and loaded. You know that jumping Jack Flash. He's a gas, gas, gas. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go Spring Heel Jack. You know, which wow. came in uh, via viewer mail. I mean, Bill, you had said that you had heard about Spring Heel Jack uh, listening to Coast to Coast Radio, um, but I had never heard of him before until Benny from the UK wrote in and asked us to look into him. Yeah, this is a real uh, creepy entity. Uh, I heard about it through a fellow named Lionel Fanthorpe, who was a renowned British storyteller. And uh, this is certainly uh, some type of creepy entity over there in England, I'm convinced. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, so spring Jack goes all the way back in English folklore to the Victorian era in London. And the first claimed sighting of spring Jack was in 1837. Um, later sightings were reported all over Great Britain and were especially prevalent, though, in suburban London. Uh -huh. So, you know, every everywhere from downtown London, where most of the sightings were, to what are called the Midlands, which is kind of if you drew a line from east to west across the UK uh, and then widened out the line a bit. That's kind of the Midlands. And a few sightings all the way up north in Scotland. Wow. And these, uh, Kev, these sightings were all nighttime? Uh, yes. All of them that I read were in the nighttime. Okay. So, I, and he's definitely that creepy kind of caped character, which we'll, we'll, get in, we'll get into some of the sightings here in a moment. Yeah, just like that Jack the Ripper madman. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of similar, you know, and similar name as well. So, uh um, so there's many theories about the nature and identity of Springhill Jack. 
Um, the tales about Jack were super popular back then in the 1800s, and many say that it's because of his bizarre appearance and that combined with his ability to make extraordinary leaps. So, of course, the spring-heeled description was about jumping like crazy. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah. What a yep. bizarre thing. And, yeah, and if we look at his uh, terrifying appearance for a moment, um, people that saw him claimed that he, that he had clawed hands, eyes that were bright red, and many stories mention a devil-like aspect to his appearance. Wow. And, and at least two folks said that he was able to speak comprehensible English. Well, you know, just, just looking at uh, glowing red eyes again, here we go with the glowing red eyes. You know, they didn't have uh, any bizarre Hollywood costume makeup back then where you could screw some uh, glow orbs into your eye sockets and look like a monster. No. You know, uh, they, were, they had some candles out in the street. Other than that, it was pretty dark. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's dark and dreary with all of the coal-fired stoves and things like that. Oh, know? man. Yeah, the and London can pre be pretty dreary anyway, you know, just from the climate. Yeah, yeah. In my I, experience. I guess that's why people frequent pubs so much over there. No doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, bro. So we're going to Yeah, we're going to spring forward one year to 1838. Uh, when this strange creature received some recognition by government officials when a barmaid by the name of Polly Adams, so speaking of pubs, this barmaid was attacked while walking across Blackheath in South London. Wow. So that's the first time somebody got attacked. And then two of the more famous accounts are known as the Alsop and Scales cases, which we'll go through. Okay, did were there bodily injuries, uh, uh, injuries to this woman? You know, they didn't say it in the Polly Adams uh, attack, but coming up here, you're going to hear about some bodily injuries. Wow. All right. <laughs> so the first one that we have a detailed account of is for Jane Alsop. And she reported that on the night of the 19th of February in 1838, she answered the door of her father's house to a man claiming to be a police officer. He told her to bring a light, claiming, quote, we have caught Spring-Heeled Jack here in the lane, unquote. She brought the person a candle and noticed that he wore a large cloak. The moment she handed him the candle, however, he threw off the cloak and, quote, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, close quote. Get this, vomiting blue and white flame from his mouth while his eyes resembled red balls of fire. Oh, my God. Talk about frightening. Super creepy. Yeah. Oh, my God. And this woman, you know, hi. You know, it's like Avon calling or the police, ma'am. Can you open the door? And this guy's standing there. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. So she reported, get this, that he wore a large helmet and that his clothing, which appeared to be very tight-fitting, resembled white oil skin. Without saying a word, he caught hold of her and began tearing her gown with his claws, which she, she was certain were of some metallic substance. She screamed for help and managed to get away from him and ran towards the house. He caught her on the steps and tore her neck and arms with his claws. 
She was rescued by one of her sisters, after which her assailant took off. Oh, man, alive. Claws, she thought, I mean, look, even if they were talons, like from a raptor, I mean, I could see how you would think they were metal, because those things don't give an inch. But holy smoke, this thing is like tearing at her and attacking her. Yeah, I mean it's it's a weird account though, right? I mean, this is one of the one of the most famous accounts, but she talks about a helmet, these metallic claws, this white oil skin outfit underneath the the big cloak. I mean, super weird. Vomiting blue flames. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what do you think? You think uh, we don't have much to go by. We can't actually lead an investigation, but what a bizarro thing, man. No doubt about it. So let's let's dig into this next case. So uh, this one occurred on the 28th of February in 1838. So only nine days after the attack on Miss Alsop, uh, this woman, 18-year-old Lucy Scales, and her sister were returning home after visiting their brother, a butcher who lived in a respectable part of Limehouse. Miss Scales stated in her disposition to the police that she and her sister were passing along Green Dragon Alley. I mean, that's a red flag right there, right? <laughs> oh, it's Green, Green Dragon Alley. What the hell? How did that get its name? I'm like, whoa, watch out for Green Dragon Alley. Um, <laughs> oh but anyway, back to the account. They observed a person standing in an angle of the passage. She was walking in front of her sister at the time, and just as she came up to the person who was wearing a large cloak, he spurted, quote, a quantity of blue flame, unquote, in her face, which deprived her of her sight and so alarmed her that she instantly dropped to the ground and was seized with violent fits, which continued for several hours. So I guess she, uh, she got so terrified she had these fits. Oh, my God. What's with the Which blue? Is reasonable, right? Yeah. What's with the blue flames spewing out of this thing's mouth? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, again, if we, if we don't go down the path of supernatural, which I'm not suggesting, or demonic, um, you know, maybe uh, they had, you know, put something in their mouth, right? Some kind of fuel, right, and spit it out and lit it on fire or something like that. Well, yeah. There is. There's. There's attributes of this that are certainly appear to be demonic. And then there's attributes that sound like it's somebody dressing up like some horrifying superhero. Well, yeah, I mean, what if what if the claws were gloves with uh, claws built into metal them? tips, right? And what if what if the blue flames were like some type of uh, lighter fu- fluid being spewed out in like a magician type of style and something igniting it? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, it's very, very odd, though. I mean, of course, not being there, we're just guessing, you know? No, but I mean, if you were a murderer or, you know, a rapist or something, preying on women, um, you know, you're maybe you're trying to scare them, you know, first. Yeah, I mean. Disabling them with fear. I don't know. You know. Right. Well, this is something. Yeah, this is some type of demon from hell or some crazed lunatic. But let's continue and see what else we have here. Yep. So, uh. Her brother, right after she's screaming, her brother added that on the evening in question, he had heard the loud screams of one of his sisters moments moments after they had left his house 
and on running up Green Dragon Alley, he found his sister Lucy on the ground in a fit, with her sister attempting to hold and support her. She was taken home, and he then learned from his older sister what had happened. She described Lucy's assailant as being of tall, thin, and gentlemanly appearance, covered in a large cloak and carrying a small lamp or bullseye lantern similar to those used by the police. The individual did not speak, nor did he try to lay hands on them, but instead walked quickly away. Every effort was made by the police to discover the author of these and similar outrages, and several persons were questioned, but all were set free. Huh. Very, very strange. Now, uh, where do we go with the uh, bizarre leaping ability? Yeah, I do I don't know, right? I mean, it's it's uh, the we can explain away a little bit the other stuff, but if the guy really like, we're going to talk about another one coming up here where he could uh, where he sprang off of the roof of uh, this sentry box, you know, like a police box that they were uh, waited in and and talking about leaping over fences and even small buildings. Oh my goodness. So, All right, let's let's dig into that. I'm interested in hearing about the uh, jumping jack portion. <laughs> All right, so the Lord Mayor of London at the time, Sir John Cohen, received complaints from several parts of London describing a demonic creature with eyes like balls of fire and hands like icy claws and able to bound from rooftop to rooftop with ease. Oh, my goodness. The, I know. The police did not dismiss these stories and even the Duke of Wellington, although aged nearly 70, went out armed on horseback to hunt and kill the monster. Who was this mysterious fiend who roamed London attacking women? During the 1850s and 60s, Spring-Heeled Jack was also seen all over England, particularly in the Midlands. The army in 1870 set traps to catch him, after scared sentries reported being terrified by a man who sprang to the roof of their sentry box. Also, in 1870, angry townsfolk of Lincoln are reported to have shot at him in the street, but he just laughed and bounded away, leaping over fences and a few small buildings. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is so outrageous. Now, you know... Something comes to my mind here. Well, a couple of things. First of all, addressing what you were just talking about. Uh, when you have uh, military and heads of state, you know, prominent people uh, now getting on board with, we got to hunt this thing down and do away with it and do away with it now. That certainly lends credence uh, to the, uh, the uh, testimonials that came forth from these different people. Well, wait till you hear this one. Oh, well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so this is known as the Aldershot sighting. Okay. Which I guess Aldershot is like a, a military base. All right. Back then. So in 1877, one of the most notable reports about spring Jack came from a group of soldiers in Aldershot's barracks. The story went as follows. A sentry on duty at the North Camp peered into the darkness his attention attracted by a peculiar figure advancing towards him. The soldier issued a challenge, which went unheeded. 
And the figure came up beside him and delivered several slaps to the face. A guard shot at him with no visible effect. Now, some sources claim that the soldier may have fired blanks at him, others that he missed or fired warning shots. The strange figure then disappeared into the surrounding darkness with astonishing leaps and bounds. Holy smoke. Amazing, right? Yeah, and you so know that's what? That's a military base. I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking of some of these uh, martial arts movies where the people are just like flying across the rooftops. Uh, <laughs> obviously, all of that stuff is uh, CG, you know, but in this day and time, now we're at a military base where this thing is basically just blowing off uh, these uh, GIs and having a little fun with them at that. No doubt about it. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it's not clear whether they shot him, they fired warning shots, or, you know, maybe the sentry's gun had blanks in it. You know, maybe it was a new guy or something. But either way, it's like this spring Jack is taunting them, right? He comes up, he sneaks up on him and slaps the guy in the face. It's not like he was trying to hurt him. It's more he was, to me, it's like he was taunting him. Yeah, like, what are you going to do about it? Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, you know, uh, in so, in the paranormal realm, uh, over the, over many decades now, uh, there have been many many people uh, around the world that talk about encountering something that's become known as the Hat Man. Uh, there are hmm. there are two figures in the paranormal realm, and I'm talking like ghost hunters, things like that, uh, that comes up again and again. One is the old hag. And the other one is called the Hat Man, which is like a tall, slender figure, uh, many times seen with a hat on, uh, and this like black coat and tails. I I always assimilate it to looking at a picture like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and this thing, uh, I haven't heard of anybody physically being attacked by it, uh, but certainly scaring people uh, in a haunting kind of way, definitely demonic in my opinion. Yeah, and definitely when you read about spring Jack, um, you do come up picking up on what you're saying of the fact that there was, you know, were legends of a lot of ghosts in the 1800s that roamed the streets of London, hmm. you know, and they're, they're all described as being pale and uh, that they stalked and preyed on lone pedestrians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it, the fact that London had this uh, pretty strong ghost culture back then in the 1800s, uh, some, some writers have argued that that kind of formed the foundation of spring Hill Jack. But, you know, in these, in these accounts that we talked about, you hear of physical injuries being caused, which, you know, I'm not a ghost hunter or by any means a ghost expert, but I didn't think, you know, ghosts were cutting people with, you know, steel claws and things like that. No, now, listen, uh, again, I'm speaking from my own background. A demon can certainly do physical harm. Uh, right. Uh, something in a ghost-like form cannot because it doesn't have a physical body. But if something right. translates from uh, the spirit into the physical, it's just like an angel uh, that you don't see. And then the guy is sitting next to you on a park bench asking you, uh, how are you doing today? 
so th- th- these two sides of the coin, good and evil, uh, have the ability to transform from one state to the other and back again, which is something pretty much incomprehensible by most of the people in the world. Yeah, pretty pretty spectacular. So, you know, we get to the last sighting. So Spring Hill Jack was last seen in 1904 uh, in Liverpool, and he was bounding up and down the streets, leaping from cobbles to rooftops and back again. So, you know, clearly springing down the street from uh, the street to the rooftops. He vanished into the darkness, and they say that some folks tried to uh, corner him and that he's never been seen since. So, uh, you know, his realm ran from uh, around 1838 to 1904. Wow. And look, I'm not even going there that this is a human being. I mean, this is not a human being to me. But if somebody said it was a human being, uh, somebody's not going to maintain that incredible ability to leap onto a rooftop as they're aging. No, I know. I, you know, that part throws me. But for some reason, Bill, the rest of it just sounds like, uh, you know, like the early Batman or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, well, and it's kind, of, it's kind of funny. So, so get this. This is what I'll close with. Okay. Uh, and maybe this is why I'm going down the Batman angle. Um, but, you know, they say in the research that no one could ever figure out who he was. But throughout the, the time of Spring Hill Jack, uh, suspicion rested with an eccentric young Marquis, uh, the Marquis of Waterford. But he was, but you know, they said although the guy was considered wild by Victorian society and even branded the Mad Marquis, he never had. There was never any evidence that he was vicious to folks or violent with folks. Now that could have been. Because he got that all out of his system while it was bounding from rooftop to rooftop. <laughs> I don't know. But, it, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know. It just feels to me like it's some kind of uh, wannabe superhero, you know. But, again, not not saving people, but hurting people. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, just maybe like, I should say some wannabe villain that really is a villain. Yeah, something like the uh, Joker out of Batman exactly. or something, you know? The, the good old Joker. Wow, that is that is absolutely crazy. And, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those far out there uh, type of things, which is why we got the other oddities segment, uh, because this listener, uh, Benny, brought it up, and we decided to drive down the, the road and see what we could dig up. And uh, that certainly is bizarre, Kev. No, it's super cool. And, you know, usually I don't I'm not able to jump into something that quickly. But candidly, after Benny mentioned it in the mail, I started reading about it and I was like, whoa, this is really weird. (laughs) (laughs) So I was all all in after that. Yeah. Another fantastic job on your part, digging up the uh, the facts relative to uh, uh, this creature or whatever it was. Uh, really bizarre, and I'm glad we went down that road. And in the future, I'm sure we'll have other uh, strange oddities to uh, talk about. Exactly. All right. Well, listen, I got something here. And, you know, it's not like none of the uh, accounts we've been talking about are lacking in detail. But uh, in this particular sighting, I like people who have a good recollection of... uh, everything leading up to and including 
uh, what it is they saw. I mean, it just lends itself to me that uh, the individual is astute, paying attention, uh, and to me, it makes the testimonial uh, that much stronger. So here we go. We got this fellow, uh, Ricky Stegmeyer, who was part of a team that intended to film a group of climbers uh, at Stone Mountain in your state, Kev, North Carolina. Uh-huh. And uh, from, yeah, have you ever seen Stone Mountain? Well, see, I think of Stone Mountain in Georgia. Um, maybe maybe it kind of runs over or something. Yeah, I don't know. We we have a couple of uh, mountains that look like stone, so maybe some people call them Stone Mountain. Could be. <laughs> but uh, from yeah. this point forward, it's Ricky who will tell the story of what happened to him uh, and the other cameramen that day. He says, I was part of a photography class in college, and one day while we were waiting for class to begin... A fellow student started showing us some stills he had shot of a group of rock climbers on Stone Mountain. He was going on and on about the climbers' ascent up the sheer rock face and the intensity Ed felt while watching them. He thought that this would be a great opportunity and location to shoot some live action footage. Now, we had a small group of like-minded peers in our class, and after some discussion, We were in agreement that this would be a great opportunity for us to cut our teeth and show our filming skills. So over a period of a few weeks, we further discussed the particulars of what we would do and how we would accomplish it. Our only obstacle was that none of us were climbers. So a couple of the guys took it upon themselves to find some climbers who would be willing to climb under our direction. This actually turned out to be quite simple, and after we had spread the word, we were able to easily find some locals who were more than happy to assist us in our effort. Stone Mountain is a 600-foot-tall granite outcropping, which is said to have formed over 300 million years ago when magma forced its way upward through the Earth's crust. This upheaval formed an approximately 25-square-mile area of igneous rock, which forms the edge of North Carolina's mountain range. The sides of Stone Mountain have been deeply grooved over millions of years by water running down its sides from the top, with these grooves appearing like deep wrinkles in the otherwise smooth surface of the dome's face. After a few weeks passed, since we had committed ourselves to the project, we met and teamed up with three of the climbers, two guys and a woman. We decided that we would go to the dome as a group in order to scope out the area for things that might be worthwhile to film, as well as mentally preparing ourselves for setting up the shoot. The climbers had told us that there was a trail called the Stone Mountain Loop, which may be of some interest to us, following up by saying that it was quite treacherous and not for the faint of heart. Now, when you start talking treacherous, you start talking about a great filming opportunity. The following week, we got together for a hike and were immediately confronted with some formidable warning signs. This area contains hazards associated with rocks, 
steep slopes and cliffs. Injury or death is possible. Stay on the marked trail. Now, I can only speak for myself, but that was quite the warning. Nobody had said anything about potentially dying here today. Having read the sign and understood its potential ramifications, we commenced the hike. The trail begins going up, up, and up, and we had, a start, we had started our ascent through the forest. And when you finally break out, you find yourself in a field of gigantic slabs of granite. According to my pedometer, we had climbed about a mile, and from this vantage point, there were absolutely magnificent views as far as the eye could see. It was simply breathtaking. Our mountaineer buddies told us that if we were to continue on the trail, we would be in for a real treat, and on their lead, we continued. A short while later, we were approaching Stone Mountain Falls, a waterfall that descends some two or three hundred feet from the top of the dome which was an absolutely fantastic sensory experience. There is a group of boardwalks where you can really get a good view of the falls, and then the descent brings you right back down to the base of the dome. As you are descending, the trail passes through the trees and overlooks a large meadow. As we were coming down that trail and looking out over the meadow, we could see a fairly large herd of deer grazing within the meadow itself. And having circumnavigated the dome, we put our heads together in order to devise the best plan for positioning ourselves to film the climbers on the face of the wall. Two days later, we had beautiful weather as the team approached the base of the dome. We had three cameras and three climbers. I was to position myself over towards the meadow, Bobby was to be on the other side of the climbers, and Roberta was to be at the base, filming from a straight-on position. We had several walkie-talkies as well with which to communicate with each other. The climbers began their ascent, and I was in fear of their imminent death the entire time. How anybody could stay clinging to that rock face for such a long time is beyond me, and I don't know where they get the strength and stamina from. It was a physical display beyond words, especially for the climber who takes the lead. The reality was that they were making incredible time, and like a well-oiled machine, the three of them went skyward. Finally, they were at the top waving at us and cheering. From my perspective, everything had gone superbly well, and I knew that we had taken some great film of their ascent. This was exciting for all of us. After a brief rest, the climbers began to repel back down the face. I was standing there, camera in hand, when I heard some commotion off to my left which sounded like some type of animal squeal, though I couldn't pinpoint the noise exactly. It was, however, coming from out in this meadow. As I turned my head, I saw what appeared to be a brown hump of fur protruding over the top of the grass, and I realized that the hump was moving up and down. 
It looked like something brown was bent over something else on the ground. And whatever it was had the appearance of somebody pulling weeds out of the ground with both hands. Moments later, this thing stood up, and I immediately knew that it was a Bigfoot, having a large, lifeless deer tucked under its arm. I didn't know how tall the grass was out there or how far the distance was that I was looking at, but as an estimate, I would have to say that most of the field was about three feet or so high, and it appeared to reach the Bigfoot at mid-thigh. Going by that, it had to be somewhere between seven and nine feet tall, and it was extremely broad at the back and shoulders. As crazy as it sounds, I could still see some of the deer in the meadow not too far away from what I was seeing. They being maybe 40 or 50 yards away from the kill. I thought that this was kind of odd, but then I recalled watching an African documentary and seeing how the gazelles hung around after lions had culled one of them out. I don't know if this thing had stalked them while crawling through the weeds or what. And I wondered if maybe it hadn't seen me. If it had been crawling down in the grass, uh, it wouldn't have. Even though I wasn't moving or making any noise, I thought that it should have at least smelled me. But there was still no acknowledgement from the beast that I was there. At any rate, it started to walk away from my position very quickly, even while carrying the deer's dead weight. I turned to grab the tripod and camera in order to position it for some footage of the beast, and when I did so, I knocked the whole tripod and camera to the ground. By the time I picked it up and tried to reposition everything to film, the monster was already in the tree line and completely obscured from my view. I grabbed my radio and started frantically telling the others what had just transpired, but we had to keep filming. We had spent the whole day at the base of the rock wall and couldn't stop now. As the climb ended and we all gathered together, the climbers became part of the conversation about the Bigfoot. Since their eyes had been transfixed on each other and the rock face the entire time, they had seen nothing. It's too bad because they would have had a bird's eye view of the whole event. Well, the rest is history, as I say, and that was my Bigfoot sighting. And then I asked uh, Rick to embellish on any of the Bigfoot's uh, features, and here is what he said. The creature appeared to be reddish-brown in color, and its hair was long. In particular, the head had much longer hair than the rest of its body. Its back was to me the entire time so I never got a chance to see its face. It was huge and very well built, and it walked entirely upright, just like we do. I couldn't see anything below the crotch because of the grass, but its strength was obvious. It had cradled this large deer in one hand, like you or I would hold a football. That same arm was actually swinging a bit while it walked, and all of its movements appeared to be effortless. I mean, think about it for a minute. Loping away in the field, 
with a 125 or 150 pound deer in your hand is unbelievable. The whole thing is unbelievable. What do you think of that, Kev? Holy cow. That's wild. Yeah. And you can see this guy is just like loaded with the details. You know, like, let me tell you the whole thing from the beginning, you know, and I'm like, okay, let it rip, brother. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, you're there, you're filming this ascent, so you're ready for adventure and that. And then you just happen to see this going on, right? First you come sight of it is uh, kind of hunched over. It turns out hunched over the deer, probably breaking its neck or something like that. Yeah, and interesting, uh, the strength that he expresses the beast had holding this thing like you or I would hold a football. Yeah, just ridiculous. I mean, you know, like 120, he's, he's saying 125, 150 pounds, and that the arm was even moving, like, I guess, swinging a little bit when it was walking with this kind of weight hanging from it. Mm, just crazy. Yeah, uh, just unbelievable. I, I mean, that, I'd be... I can't imagine, right? But he, he's seeing it, and then the climbers up on the mountain, they're not seeing it, but they're living their own adventure, right? I mean, even uh, even that's just terrifying. These rock climbers are just like, holy cow. Yeah, well, you could tell. I mean, it was an ingenious thing on their part to film the rock climbers because, I mean, we see a lot of stuff like this now in a variety of different sorts, like cliff diving and well, whatever, you know. So it would be an adventurous kind of film to break out on the glass, you know? Yeah, I, d I definitely got to head out west here in the state, too, and check out this stone mountain. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. The waterfall and everything. Yeah, he said, uh, uh, and his description, you know, he gives us a little bit of the scientific background and what by uh, this magma uh, forcing its way up through the Earth's crust, forming this, uh, this. And really, he's calling it Stone Mountain, but if you caught him, it's only like a few hundred feet tall. So, yeah, we have the small mountains here in North Carolina. You know, they're, they're, you know, some of them I think are more than a thousand feet, but they're not very big. Okay, they're kind of the old mountains of Appalachian, where they're kind of, you know, they say they're worn down. Of course, they're, they're not active. You know, compared to when I was up in Alaska, where you see the volcanoes that are still active. Yeah, so the Earth the is younger mountains. Yeah, the younger mountains, everything's still moving. I mean, you don't see it. What we do see is volcanic activity, but uh, you don't physically see mountains growing. You know? No, no, absolutely unbelievable. Um, but, I mean, what a what an account, though. That's fantastic, and uh, I don't rem I don't I don't recall another account where uh, the hairy man is walking away with a deer under his arm. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we'll be getting into some stuff down the road here. Uh, I do have some accounts uh, where these uh, creatures had uh, deer and or hogs thrown over their shoulders, uh, holding them under their arms. So this is for something with like ultra superhuman strength. Uh, it's no shock to me. Like, they don't even consider that they're holding weight. I mean, that's the way it appears. It's like like nothing. Spectacular. Yeah. Great yeah. account. Yeah, yeah. I thought, um, I thought I would pull that one out of the box today for the listeners because uh, uh, going into Spring Heels Jack and then diving into this encounter, I thought would be complimentary, if you will. Absolutely. A lot of detail, too, like you said, going into it. Yeah, yeah, no, very good. 
So that's a wrap awesome. on that one, Kev. I, that's excellent. What do we got uh, from our listeners today? Anybody writing into us? Yo, we got some good mail again this week, and thanks to everybody for taking the time to uh, send us your thoughts and some ideas. So uh, the first one comes from Chris, and Chris is out in Picture Rocks, Arizona. Wow. Which I got to look that up where that is. As you know, Bill, I lived in Arizona for a few years. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't recall Picture Rocks, though, but it's a big state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Chris says, great show. You should check into sightings out here in Arizona, particularly in the White Mountains and up in the Mongolian Rim. I don't know if it's supposed to be Mongolian or Mongolian, but it's written Mongolian. Okay. You guys are the best. Uh, sincerely, Chris in Picture Rocks, Arizona. You know, uh, first of all, Chris, uh, thanks for chiming in with us. And that's what it's all about, uh, folks. You know, uh, you may think there are tens of thousands of people uh uh, contacting us, uh, and why should I bother? But uh, we're asking you to interact with us, and people are shocked how quickly I get back to them. Uh, many people have said, I can't believe you even talk to me. <laughs> like <laughs> They think we're like untouchables, Kev. <laughs> no, no, it is great to hear folks, out, hear from you, all of you out there. I mean, you know, Bill and I, we do this podcast, we've told you, we're not even sitting together. You know, we're... I'm down in North Carolina. Bill's up in New York. We're interacting on Skype, recording it simultaneously, and then putting it together. So, you know, we're not even sitting with one another. Right, so right. It's so great to hear from all of you, whatever whatever you have to say. And then, of course, the ideas on things that you've seen or things you've heard about, I mean, they're priceless. Yeah, and uh, Chris, you're going to be very... Uh either excited or dumbfounded by what I'm about to say. Uh, I have volume eight being edited uh, right now. That's going to be a little while into doing. And uh, I'm into uh, volume nine. And I think one of the reasons, I didn't mention this to my brother. I just forwarded him your email. Uh, I think you're going to be very shocked at one of the accounts in volume nine. Uh, relative to what you just asked us to check into. And I'm just going to leave it like that as a surprise for down the road. Uh Yeah, yep. A little little, cliffhanger. Yep. You know, uh, getting back to your uh, Stone Mountain cliffhanger. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, bro. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I happen out to the White Mountains there, and I don't doubt that there would be sightings out there because the White Mountains are in the... (laughs) In the eastern part of Arizona. A lot of it, I believe, is on Native American land as well. So it's pretty darn rural. I mean, when I lived out there, there were a couple of ski resorts out there that were owned by the Native Americans. I never skied out in Arizona, but uh, it was a a beautiful place to get away to. You know, now, uh, listen, just speaking for myself, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there who think the same way. Uh, When somebody says Arizona to me, I'm think of thinking of the painted rocks, desert, cactus, and a lot of heat and sand. But that's not really the case. Well, there's certainly a lot of that. But as you go up in elevation, um, and it's really a bit like I, what I would tell folks, you know, I mean, I lived out there later in life. I would tell folks, I wish you could live out there when you were studying earth science, you know, back in middle school, right, where 
you you would learn about the changes in elevation because when you jump on the interstate in Arizona, you live through your earth science class. So, you know, you start out certainly, Bill, with the rocks and sand and huge cactus, the saguaro cactus, and everything that goes with that, the extreme heat, you know, the, the desert itself. But as you go up in elevation, you start to see some big trees, some tall grass. Of course, the temperatures drop. You know, you start to have, you know, some regular weather patterns and things like that. And when you head out east um, into this part of the state that Chris talks about, it's definitely uh, more more like the latter than the former. You know, you got the big pines and tall grass yeah. as you head up in the elevation. Now, Kev, help help me with my geography a little bit. This eastern port of, uh, part of Arizona borders with what? So you're heading towards New Mexico. Okay, New Mexico. Yeah. All right, well. So uh, California to Arizona to New Mexico. Okay, all right. And you get yeah. into some big sticks, as I call them, and uh, some higher elevations. And you're talking about snow skiing. Oh, definitely. Definitely snow skiing. Yeah, wow, that's freaking You know, bizarre. both up north and out to the east. Awesome. In Arizona. All right, so cool. stay tuned, folks. Down the road. Uh, if Chris, if you're out there down the road, you're in for a surprise. <laughs> All right. So this next one I, I really like. It's from Trent in Utah. Okay. And uh, he says, first things first, excellent, excellent show. He says, I'm 45 years old, and I had one of your books laying on the end table in my living room last Friday evening when my uncle dropped in. Now, my uncle is 69, and obviously we've known each other our entire lives. He picked up the book and with no hesitation goes on to tell me about seeing a Bigfoot in his early 70s while horseback riding in Wyoming. In my entire life, he had said nothing, and it was only because of your book that I learned of it. I told, <coughs> I told him to contact you. Regards, Trent. Wow, that's really interesting. You know, uh, so in the early 70s, he sees this, he has a sighting of a Bigfoot. And the only thing that stimulated him to speak about it was seeing the book laying on the table. It's classic. I mean, not hard to believe, Bill. I'm sure we're going to hear other stories like this where you need something that jars you, you know, to, to talk about it, especially if it was that long ago. Yeah, and he has the, it's the kid's uncle. But for whatever reason, you know, he doesn't speak about it. And then all of a sudden, this one day, he's like, well, you know, I've seen one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Holy cow. Well, I hope this fellow uh, contacts me. And Trent, uh, stay on your uncle and uh, haunt him a little bit and ask him, hey, did you contact WJ? Did you contact WJ? Because I'd love to talk to this guy. Mm. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, brother, what do you got? We're going to go to Eastern Europe uh, to Annette in Lithuania. Holy smoke. And she says, as you you probably know already, the Russian government is reopening the Dyatlov case for further investigation. But who knows what, if anything, can be trusted when the government gets involved. Do you have any evidence of such creatures attacking humans? With love... Annette. Hmm. 
That'd be yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, Annette, uh, there are loads and loads of incidences, if you believe them, of uh, people being attacked and or assaulted by Bigfoot. And there are plenty of people out there uh, who believe uh, that, and I've heard the term used, kidnappers, going back hundreds of years, uh, that these things are responsible for taking uh, humans. Uh, Again, my feelings on this are you got the good and the bad, just like you do with dogs or anything else. Some are more vicious, some are more docile. Uh, but I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, my opinion is that if you see Bigfoot and walk away, you had a good day. Mm. I don't uh, I don't espouse to uh, being in close quarters with these creatures to find out uh, <clears throat> whether it's a truth or a lie that they, they will or, uh, attack you. Uh, but uh, something that big, uh, it's an uncontrollable situation. You know, you may be sad you entered into it if something like that occurs in your life. Yeah, no, and I think of it, Bill, as, you know, the question you posed uh, being uh, more, to me, more animal with human-like characteristics. And like you mentioned with the dog, like any animal, um, you know, there are some that are in a good place and they're not going to uh, attack you uh, without being provoked. And there's some that are in a bad place that, may attack you for whatever reason. You right? know, they, who knows? Yeah, Kev, you, you look at your nice dog, your lab. Beautiful, loving, mushy kind of dog. You know, your typical uh, home dog, uh, family dog. And I have known people that have had other uh, animals like yours that were just out and out vicious against anybody other than their owners. Hmm. So what causes that to happen? I have no idea. Yep, yep. And even even my little beast, uh, as docile as she is when she knows you, when folks come to the door, wow, does she have a big bark. I mean, it it shocks me sometimes. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. But, but like a good lab, you know, her world centers around food. So <laughs> I tend to think, you know, she's worried somebody's coming after a food bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. It could be. Uh, that, no, that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic tale. And and thanks again for uh, writing into us, Annette. Appreciate it. And I just want to go on the record, Bill. And that says, but who knows if anything can be trusted when the Russian government gets involved. I want to go on the record as saying, I trust everything the Russian government does. <laughs> I <laughs> second record, that. That was my brother laughing. <laughs> yes, I second that. I trust them wholeheartedly. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Our our next note comes in from Bert in Maine. So we're up in the northeastern uh, part of of the United States. He says, I've read all of your books several times. Of course, he's up in Maine. It's freezing cold and really dark up there. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I really appreciate what you're doing and now the podcast. Wow. I also once came upon a deer in northern Maine that had its front legs broken, was torn open in the belly, and its intestines and liver were missing. 
I don't believe the kill was a, was more than a day old when I found it. This matches perfectly with a couple of the accounts you had recorded in my state. Excellent job on the part of both of you, Bert. Wow. And Bert's brother is no doubt named Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bert. <laughs> hey. Hey, you know something? Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I had a hunter tell me uh, at some point, uh, talking about uh, Bigfoot attacks in, uh, I think it was uh, Wyoming, uh, maybe Idaho. Anyway, he commented on uh, the removal of certain uh, uh, organ meat uh, from a carcass, which he said to me was the most nutritious part of the animal. Hmm. Uh, and... It's kind of weird that he says the legs were broken, which is a typical uh, attack that I've heard about on an animal, breaking the leg and then breaking the neck. Or, and the fact that these uh, particular uh, portions of the innards were gone. Uh, also, in, also interesting, too, that he doesn't comment on anything else being damaged on it, like uh, chewed at or gnawed at or clawed at and saying it appeared to be what about a day old he said yeah no more than a day old yeah well you know and he here we go again he is a guy who if you believe what he says is able to judge what something looks like a day old or a week old in the woods i couldn't tell you no, but, I know. Definite hunter, right? Yeah, I mean, he. how do you identify when something's no more than a day old? Hmm. I, 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 would, I wouldn't know, you know. <laughs> very bizarre, very bizarre. And thanks for chiming in with us, man. That's just incredible. Also, to that fella, uh, what was his name, Bert? That was Bert, yeah. Ernie's brother. Yeah, Ernie's brother. How could I forget? Uh, <laughs> I, Bert, if you're listening to this podcast, uh I'd like to talk to you a little further about that. So uh, please get back to me and uh, we'll get together for a little conversation, if you don't mind. Yeah, send us a note, Bert, at uh, uh, com. Yep. Fantastic. Man, these freaking, well, we're, we're really getting, uh, we're really heating up here with some of this uh, listener mail. We're getting some good listener mail, Bill, and uh, we're going to go to our last note for the week. Um, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this. I think it's Paula, P-A-O-L-A, in Guatemala. Oh, it, well, uh, in Spanish, they people with that name, they call each other Paola. Oh, so it is Paola. Yeah. Okay. And some people say Paul, like the, almost like a boy's name, Paul. It, it's like okay. a, a, loose, a loose rendition of that. But, of course, we look at it pronouncing everything in English. And uh, yeah. but anything is good. They would answer to that if you said that to them. I was thinking payola. Isn't that where the the uh, radio DJs used to get paid to play the records? <laughs> <laughs> you may be right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go to payola in Guatemala. Guatemala. Okay. Um, and uh, we'll we'll assume it's a she. Uh, I really enjoy your show. My grandfather, who was a coffee farmer, was run out of the hills by what we call Sisamito in the 1950s. 
a huge hair-covered man-like monster. When he and some other men returned with weapons, his coffee sacks were broken and scattered, and his burrow was never seen again. Thanks for what you do, Paola. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. I mean, what what the heck? I mean, this guy is a coffee farmer in Guatemala in the 50s? Yep, exactly. I mean, he must have been like walking around the rolling vegetated hills of the country uh, and had this thing. I don't know what it did. Did she say Go through that again. Did she say it assaulted him or ran out at him? Well, it says that he was run out of the hills by uh, what we call Sisamito in the 50s. Um, you know, and then, they, you know, I guess he was unarmed, right? He's picking coffee. Yeah. And when he and some of the other men returned with weapons, uh, everything was destroyed. You know, when he left it, it was good. And when he came back, everything was broken and scattered and his burrow was gone. Wow. I mean, listen, here we go again. Obviously, to a, I'm assuming this is probably a, 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 a agrarian type of culture, people making a couple of bucks or bartering off of what they grow with each other. An animal like a, a donkey or a burrow has to be something of great value to an individual like this as far as possessions go. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, no doubt about it. So for him to flee the area, obviously leaving his burrow behind and some sacks of coffee, uh, this was not, uh, you know, he didn't have time uh, to plan a better way of getting out of there if you follow where I'm going with this. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, they describe it as a huge hair-covered man-like monster. I mean, you can imagine you're walking along on the hillside and you're picking coffee, you know, trying to make ends meet. And you turn around and you see this, you know, hairy man looking at you. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, you know, and nothing against the people of Guatemala. Uh, uh, I know some people, you know, my wife is from Central America. Uh, and a lot of her friends are from uh, Ecuador and Peru and all of these different places. Uh a lot of these people are not uh, large of large stature. You don't you don't see many six foot tall people down there. There are a lot of uh, smaller stature people, both men and women. So if you had some giant hair covered monster, I mean, it would scare the bejeebas out of me, and <laughs> I, I'm sure it scared him half to death, which is why he ran off and left his uh, uh, basically left his money on the on the mule and took off. Oh, no, out, bad, Bill. I mean, you know, I'm over six feet tall, and some people might call me a hair-covered hair monster if uh, <laughs> I didn't have my head shaved. <laughs> but if I saw something that was the hairy man, boy, I'm scared of bejesus. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, that's right. So here we go, Kev. Here we go again. What is it? The Sisamito? Sisamito, yeah. So, I mean, or Sisimito, maybe. But yeah. like you like you said earlier, you know, if you have an encounter and you get away unscathed, that's that's a fantastic encounter. Yeah, and this guy obviously lived to tell the tale. Exactly. Wow.
And yeah, he came back with his weapons and stuff and didn't find him, lost the burrow, but at least he's telling the tale some years later. Yeah, so, you know, here we go, Kev. Uh, you know how I forwarded you, a while, forwarded you a while ago that picture of the, quote, sightings in North America of Bigfoot? Oh, yeah, the but, map. But listen, I don't know who put that together exactly or from what data, but that is just a fraction of what's out there. Uh, oh, no doubt about it. And no doubt about it. With these people coming in from all over the compass... Uh, talking about this and that and the other thing, who knows how many people have actually seen uh, a Bigfoot-like creature or any other cryptid or strange thing around the planet. I mean, the numbers could be staggering. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Wow. Good stuff. Well, is that the end of our listener mail? That's it. So, you know, I would just say, uh, again, thank everyone for uh, sending in the feedback, sending in the mail, and leaving leaving the great reviews as well. And, uh, you know, we're coming in here on the first day of autumn. So if you're thinking about getting your Halloween costume together, don't forget about spring Heel Jack if you want to scare <laughs> the kids in your neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you're going to be spring Jack, you better be able to jump, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I want to That's thank gosh. everybody for tuning in. And I want to leave you with this sobering reminder. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>